0: start with going back to Psalm 13. So if you have a pew Bible, open it to page 852. And if you have a different Bible, open up to the place that says Psalm 13. And that's partly because Psalm 19 and Psalm 13 are quite different. And in some ways, they're in contrast to each other. So listen to Psalm 13 again. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death my enemy will say, I have overcome him, and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me. So there's that. And then a few chapters later, it starts out, the heavens declare the glory of God. Right? Maybe the biggest conflict in—that we have with the Bible, and even within the Bible itself, is the conflict between God's perspective and ours on how revealed God is. Or to go from our perspective, how revealed God isn't. You look at Psalm 13, and it's a huge struggle with how God—how evident God seems to be. And then you look in Psalm 19, and it seems to declare as unequivocally as possible that God is perfectly evident— Last week, um, when I talked about Psalm 13, I talked about um, the argument from divine hiddenness, that these days, when people think about God and faith, this is one of their absolute biggest questions, the question of the hiddenness of God. And last week, I basically said, you know, people don't say it this way, but if they were going to say it as an argument, it would be something like this. You think the biblical God exists, but the biblical God is inconclusively hidden. Premise three, and there's no good reason for that. Therefore, um, God is either negligent, inept, or weak, right? But premises four and one can't both be true, because the biblical God isn't negligent, inept, and weak. Therefore, six, God does not exist, right? Now, I said in that argument there's two premises in particular that are objectionable, that are—that could very well be false— that is, that God is totally hidden, that the evidence for him really is inconclusive, and two, that there's no good reason for the amount of hiddenness that there is, right? Now, last week I talked about number three, and I talked about how how to deal with emotional times where the place we're in, in terms of our heart and our thinking and our will, is, God, where the heck are you? This is crazy. And so if— If you didn't hear that, I'd encourage you to go back and hear that. And if you think that I'm not paying any attention to the most important issues related to this, I may have talked about them last week. So you might want to check that out. This week, Psalm 19 hits one of these square in the face. That is premise two, that God is so hidden. Psalm 19 seems to very directly claim that God actually isn't near as hidden as we convince ourselves God is. In fact, if we read Psalm 19, we'll come to, I think, this conclusion, at least about what Psalm 19 is claiming. Whether you believe or you don't, this is what Psalm 19 says. And that is, God's revelation is beyond sufficient to know God is glorious and wonderful. It's not insufficient. It's not inconclusive. If Psalm 19 is revelation from God, as it is in the written scriptures, then God's perspective is that his revelation is beyond sufficient in order for us to know him as glorious and is wonderful. Now, there's two parts to this in the psalm. There's essentially, the, there's the first part about God's general revelation in creation, and there's a part about his special revelation, his verbal revelation in the scriptures. The first one is, the first four verses or so, or six verses, sorry, basically claim that the natural revelation of God displays God's glory. Right? The first verse says, the heavens declare the glory of God. and, And here's the thing that I think is very important to recognize in these first verses The language used could not be stronger and could not be more universal Okay So what does it say the natural creation does, right? It says the heavens declare the glory of God That's not a very passive word, is it? Right? That The skies proclaim, right? So that's an intensification, right? That's poetry for you, Right? Declare—that's already pretty forceful. Now he goes looking for a more forceful word to put in synonymous parallelism, right? So it means the same thing but amplified. So the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech, right? Night after night, they display knowledge. So it's pretty forceful, right? It's not—it's not subtle. It's not like, well, you know, God said a couple of things that if you look really carefully, you could know. It does—it's not the claim at all, is it? It couldn't be stronger. And it's also universal, right? Look at the underlying italicized stuff. Day after day and night after night, meaning all the time. It's always happening. And it says, there's no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. So the, the argument essentially, even though it's poetry, is anywhere where a language is spoken, this language is spoken it's universal there is no human being that does not have this witness to them right that's pretty forceful i mean it would it could cause us to think if this were true that the natural creation displays god's glory that it really does that god is in all that hidden now then the example that's used right is the sun John Calvin said about this. He said, God could have used—or the, the writer could have used the sun or could have used the smallest insect. Anything in natural creation, this could be said about. But he—but he creates this picture of the sun coming across the sky like a champion every day, revealing. And, and I, I realize that for some people with modern scientific years, this is difficult— A difficult way for you to have your faith increase But let me just be really clear about this This is a song celebrating the glory of God in creation It's not a philosophical argument that God displays himself in creation Does that make sense? It's it's a different kind of writing So don't fault it for a kind of writing it isn't Right? And you and I use colloquial language poetically all the time Right? And if you haven't You need to write your wife or girlfriend or mom a new poem Because your poetry stinks I did hold back the word I wanted to say. The point is, is that there's wonder to it. And one of the difficulties we get into as scientific people, because science is a wonderful thing, right, is that because we can explain why something happens, for some reason, it causes us to lose the wonder, right? So why is it that when we teach ourselves or our children about xylem and phloem— they stop being obsessed with the beauty of trees. Why should that be? Why should it be because you know why something happens? You lose the—that's crazy that that works, right? It reminds me of the, of the Louis C.K. Um, time—I think it was on Letterman— where he was talking about people complaining and moaning about how Wi-Fi doesn't work on their, in the airplane. They're like, oh, man, this stinks. My Wi-Fi doesn't work. And, he, and his response was, dude, you are in a chair in the sky— Okay? You're in a chair in the sky. You're flying for like $400. You're flying, right? Which it's hilarious when he says it, but that's what—think about that. That's what we do all the time. He actually was observing something about human nature, right? That's why—that's why preachers should be funny, right? Because it's the same work, right? We tend to do that. We, we think because we know something— It's not amazing, it is amazing Trees are amazing, yes Xylem and phloem Do teach us how liquid moves up and down trees Trees are still amazing, okay Yes, we know why airplanes fly Because of aerodynamic principles It's still amazing, okay Yes, it's true, we know that DNA lays on a double helix It's still amazing, it's amazing just because we can explain how it works. Science is amazing. The fact that we can investigate how things work. It's amazing. That God would be so good as to give us reasonable and rational minds such that we could explore his creation is amazing. I'm for science. Most scientific professions are noble in the Christian spirit. Enter them with humble pride. But it doesn't take away that things are amazing. And it is a sign of our dullness that we're not astounded, not a lack of glory in those things. Yeah. <laughs> the, the other thing to recognize, too—and and I, I need to say a little bit about this because of the, the scientific world that we live in— one of the things we need to remember, too, is, is that um, when it comes to God's revelation of himself implicitly in the natural world— um, Things may be getting worse for atheism, not better, as science progresses. Um, There's there's often this idea that as science keeps going, it's explaining more and more things, and so there's less and less room for God, right? And so there's, you know, there's just God of the gaps. There's these tiny little gaps left, and if you just give science enough time, those gaps will disappear, and there'll be no more room for God. And sometimes I don't think we realize how silly an argument that is and how unscientific an argument that is. It's silly because even if you explained all the natural processes of the world, it wouldn't have one iota of reference to whether or not God exists. First of all, that one doesn't follow from the other. It's bad philosophy. But secondly, just practically in terms of science, every time we send out a new expedition into a new frontier, we find another frontier on the other side of it. So, I mean, it's kind of like arguing that because you sent Lewis and Clark and they found Oregon, therefore, there's no Pacific Ocean. Like, When we stop finding something, then we might be able to talk about the fact that we've actually explored everything The fact is, is that we just keep finding amazing stuff Which should cause us to be more astounded at the glory of God in creation, not less You know, if you dig down, if you're trying to explain a plant and you dig down three inches on the root rather than two You haven't, you haven't gotten to the bottom of things and when we, when we look at the bottom of things in science, we're we just, we're no further explaining these things than when we started out, right? Yes, we've accepted Big Bang cosmology. Awesome. So now everything started from a Big Bang that we can't explain. That's fabulous, right? Or, or teleology. Things are incredibly finely tuned. Now we've done a bunch of physics and math to realize just how finely tuned everything is. That's wonderfully scientific. It just creates a bigger problem. How on earth did that happen? Or how in the cosmos did that happen? And even when it comes to biology I mean, people are like Well, you know, evolutionary theory At least has explained all of that Oh, really? I mean, just read a little bit About the origin of life debate Specifically in relationship To the problem of information there is, there is no working theory at all For how the astounding amount of information That is in the human cell Could be produced There isn't one The problem of information Is worse than any obstacle in understanding human life that human beings have ever looked at. By far. I mean, there's hardly even theories about how this could have happened. And, you know, we we know, we we all have theories, right? And scientists are just as creative as everybody else. There's usually lots of theories, and there's not a lot of theories about how this one could work. The problem of information is astoundingly difficult. And I would argue, as I am a—I love— the human capacity for science. I believe science is a gift from God. Uh, humans, f- uh, Christians factually have been on the vanguard of science. The, the church was involved as much, ten times more in inventing science than in suppressing it historically. It's Just a fact. However, our practice of science and our attitudes about science Are often very reductive, silly And they suck the wonder out of something That science should cause us to constantly wonder more at, not less Now The problem that we have to face with this is That we don't believe that Sorry Right? We we actually don't believe that That does not sound credible to us for the most part Because here's the problem If that's true then we are the problem somehow Right? Because if we don't believe God is revealed In the natural world if, he, if we don't believe the heavens reveal the glory of God Because we don't believe the glory of God is sufficiently revealed Because we believe in God's hid, Too much hiddenness His insufficient revelation That could implicate us as being the problem But what does everybody believe about themselves? What's the first assumption every human be- being makes about themselves spiritually? That they're spiritually authentic Everybody believes that It's kind of like What's the percentage of people That believe they're good people In the world It's about a hundred Give or take zero percent Yeah Even the people who say I'm not a good person They secretly think They're a pretty good person For recognizing that They're not a good person Right? Even people who are jerks Like have you met the guy who's a total jerk to everybody But he really thinks he's a good person Because he works 70 hour work weeks And he's a hard worker And being a hard worker is the most important thing to being a good man Everybody finds a way to get there Spirituality is no different Except instead of being a good person What we really believe about ourselves is we're an authentic seeker Everybody believes that about themselves It's about 100% give or take 0% Here's the problem The Bible explicitly says that that's false Here's the clearest place In Romans chapter 1 Romans is 19 chapters But apparently the Apostle Paul felt like This needed to get cleared up pretty early So by the 18th verse he says The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven Against all the godlessness and wickedness of men Who suppress the truth By their wickedness Right? Since So the wrath of God is being revealed against, against humankind who are suppressors of truth. Now, why is that? Why is that happening? Since, that's a connecting word, right? What may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. You see the argument? They're culpable for suppressing the truth because the truth is clear enough they ought to know it. Now, that can't be right, right? For, okay, so the argument continues. For, right, so now he's going to explain this. Since the creation of the world You see? So how has he made it plain to them? Well, since the beginning Since the creation of the world God's invisible qualities His eternal power and divine nature Have been clearly seen Being understood Not able to be understood But being understood That is, it's innate knowledge You know it You can't not know it Being understood from what has been made So that men are without excuse See the argument? The wrath of God is being revealed Why? Because he made it known, right? Now, what's the problem with that? He says, because—here's how he made it known. Since the very beginning, from the creation of the world, at least least two things were known about God. Things that would otherwise be invisible, right? So you could say, well, God's invisible. Okay, wait. But those invisible qualities God made visible when he created the natural world, and two of them that we should innately know are his eternal power and his divine nature— Right? And then Paul goes on to argue, and here's how we know that's sufficient. Because we are idol makers. We make little idols. We want to worship ourselves, or we want to make something that looks just like ourselves that we can worship, because we want to define ourselves from ourselves, tell ourselves what to do, do what we want to do, seek salvation in our own way. The problem with that is, is that that causes us to worship something a lot smaller than something that has eternal power and divine nature, and shows that we know those two things and don't care. And therefore are truth suppressors And so the natural revelation In order to condemn us as truth suppressors Needs to reveal nothing more Than God's omnipotence and his omniscience That is enough Because the minute we turn to be little idolaters And do whatever we want And demonstrate morally That we suppress the truth We show that we don't believe the first two things That we innately already know About the real world We are rebels We're truth suppressors now, again, we don't believe that. So, the philosophical argument for this Sunday is, how is it—how should we find persuasive this argument that the Scriptures make about us being spiritual, spiritually deluded? And the, fir- the first is to recognize this is Scripture's claim. You put the positive claim of Psalm 19 together with the negative claim about what we are in Romans 1, it should be pretty clear that this is the case in Scripture— now, the question we need to then ask ourselves is Okay, so it's saying that we're truth suppressors That is, we're self-deluding Now, let me just ask you a question Do you find that human beings are usually really well connected to reality? Especially in abstract thinking rather than in understanding physical objects So most people know, like, there's a car there, I shouldn't walk into it Okay? But the minute you're talking about abstract things About truth, life, morality, love well, Are they connected to reality pretty well? It's not my experience, okay? I think most people would recognize that, that delusion is not an uncommon feature of human life, right? So then the question is, is spirituality immune to this delusion that we find in humans, right? But are you similarly? No, there's no reason to think that. There's no reason to think that humans are generally deluded about abstract thinking and feeling, and the minute you, you walk over here to spirituality, it's, it's totally clean, Right? So so why don't we pick on that? Well, here's why we don't pick on that. Because picking on people's spiritual authenticity is considered rude. Right? Which just proves the point. Because philosophically, rudeness is not an objection. Right? If somebody's rude, that doesn't mean what they just said is false, does it? There's no relationship between those two things. But what do we like to make considered rude? Well, oftentimes it's places we know darn well we're wrong and we don't want anybody to bring it up. So it becomes rude to say so. So the fact that it's rude to say something about anybody's possible spiritual authenticity really ought to tell us that it might be a place where we're lying to ourselves. Now, it might not be. There's lots of things that are rude that really ought to be rude, right? But it's certainly possible. So then the qu- next question to ask is, if, if I was—well, let's—of course, you're not spiritually deluded and I'm not, but let's just take a hypothetical human, Okay? If there was a hypothetical human who was a truth suppressor, who was deluded in this way in relationship to God's revelation of himself, what is the first thing that person would necessarily have to believe in the process of self-delusion? You could not be self-deluded without this being the case. It's philosophically necessary. See the spitfly there? That was good, huh? You're just out of range. That's why you sit in the second row, isn't it? Um, right? There is something, and it's, what is it? You'd have to believe you're an authentic spiritual seeker, right? The first step in any delusion, right, is what? To delude yourself that you're not deluding yourself. Or the first step in lying to yourself is lying to yourself that you're not lying to yourself. Otherwise, it can't work, right? You've got to have this first immediate step of of the insertion of dishonesty. It has to happen, and it has to happen in a way you can persuade yourself it didn't really happen. Which means That if we're truth suppressors By definition We would have to all believe We were perfectly authentic spiritual seekers So the fact that you and I Are really convinced That we're deeply authentic spiritual seekers Might be because We're deeply authentic spiritual seekers Or it could just as reasonably mean We're self-deluded About being authentic spiritual seekers Because we suppress the truth. Now, why would we want to suppress the truth? Right? That's the next question. Why would it be that rather than the other? Do we have any—is there motive for this? Right? And my argument would be, oh yeah. Oh yeah, there's motive. Unbelief or atheism has plenty of motive. Now, I'm not saying that religion doesn't have motive. There's plenty of religious motive, but there's plenty of atheistic motive. Um, It's a very famous essay at this point because so many atheists are so angry that he wrote this. But Thomas Nagel, a professor of philosophy at NYU, who's taken degrees from Harvard and Oxford— so he doesn't know anything, so he must be wrong, um, just inferior educational background— did say this about his own atheistic view. He said, I want atheism to be true, and am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers— It's not just that I do not believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. My guess is that this cosmic authority problem is not a rare condition and that it is responsible for much of the scientism and reductionism of our time. Scientism is a technical word referring to the belief that science, science is everything intellectually. Um, That is... We have plenty of internal human self-interested motive to have nobody tell us what to do, to be free, to define ourselves from ourselves, to do what we want, to make our own decisions, to manage our own lives, to to seek whatever will make us happy. in a a culture in which we've been formed by the structures of consumerism our entire life, built into us is a radical idea that we have to be free at any moment to change our allegiances because we might not be happy where we are, and there may be something over there that we believe will make us happy and moving from the one to the other is the most necessary thing for our happiness we have one expiring and distinguishing life the only part of anybody's life that matters is when they're young, and I've got to have the freedom to do it and if you don't think that will lead us To tell God to just shove it In ways where we self-delude ourselves Into thinking that's okay I don't know what to tell you I think you're being skeptical about the wrong stuff Now It's really important Especially if you're a Christian To recognize the last part of this argument And that is You do the same thing The same way In a less rational way And so do I Are Christians free of this truth-suppressing delusion? Nope. Nope. In fact, one of the reasons we know our unbelieving neighbors and friends do it is because we see it in ourselves, and it's so universal and ubiquitous a part of humanity. It's everywhere. It's in us. It's in everybody. You look at us, and we accept God, and then what do we do? Just, just sit down for, for yourself this afternoon With just all you need is seven minutes Get a, get a pen or a smartphone note program and, and sit down Give yourself seven minutes And ask yourself this question If you're a Christian Where do I actually know That God has said something About how I should think, feel, or live my life Where I have persuaded myself It's just not all that important God wasn't really all that clear about it it applies to modern times really totally differently. God didn't really mean it, or God will forgive me if I do it. That is, God's been perfectly clear, and you still just aren't going to do it. How many times have you listened to a sermon or a talk or something like that, and, that, and the preacher started meddling in something? Like, how to use your money, how to use your romance— what work is, how you should treat other people, whatever That you need to forgive someone That you don't want to forgive That you need to be good to somebody who's annoying That you need to be broader with your love Than just the people you like being around at this minute And you found a way to just go eh. it's, it's the exact same thing It's exactly the same Except it's less reasonable At least the atheist goes There's no God, I can do what I want That's perfectly rational Right, it's less rational to say, "Yep, there's a totally God who's king over everything. His divine power and his he's, his eternal nature is totally clear, and I'm just not going to do what He wants." Which mean, is more reasonable, right? And that's why I refer to Christians doing that as just idolatry subcontracting, right? So yes, okay, God, yep, God for salvation and generally blessing me, and then in the subcontracted areas, I'll just be I'll, I'll just be an idolater down here. Rather than up there And listen, you've, you've got to have that six If you're going to explain this to your neighbor, friend, yourself You've got to have that sixth premise in there One, because it's true Two, because you need it Or you will fall into a form of self-righteousness about it Because it's, oh, it's those atheist, unbeliever people who, do, who suppress the truth And me who embraces it <laughs> Not so much, probably, Right? And third, they need it. Otherwise, they'd be like, oh, so you want to just invite me into your self-righteousness club? That sounds fun. You've got to have that, that sixth part or it doesn't work and it's not really— it's, it's still true, but it's not true enough. It's not enough of the truth to make it work. Does that make sense? Now, if you believe that, great. If you don't humor me for a minute— and ask yourself the question, if I believed that, what would that then assume? And that would be this. That the question you'd have to ask is this. If verses 1 to 7 or 6 are true, that God has revealed himself, that we don't accept the, the parts of revelation he has given, and that we are truth suppressors out of our own idolatry and pride, and if God was going to reach out to us even more, what kind of additional revelation would we require? And you see, if you ask that question, it should occur to you pretty quick a fundamentally different kind. You see, what we want is, is for God to go big again, right? That's what we want. Every atheist I've ever talked to or heard to talk has always said, listen, if God just appeared right now and said, believe in me, I would. See, he wants everybody to go big. It's like building a basketball team with all forwards. Everybody's over seven foot. How many wins are you going to get? Not very many. Right? They want God to go big again, but God's not interested in going big because he doesn't have to disprove atheism. He has to humble our pride. He has to show not that just that he's there, but that he's worthwhile. If what we're doing is seeking something else, he's got to not just show that he's there, he's got he's to smush what we've bought into, and he's got to show us that what he's offered us in the first place is worth it. He's got to show not just that he's glorious, but that he's wonderful. And the primary way he does, he does that in this psalm, is through his verbal revelation, what he's revealed. What we call in Christian faith, special revelation. So there's general revelation, that which is the natural world from the cosmos to the conscience that reveals God's eternal power and divine nature. But then in addition to that, what we require is something that humbles our pride and shows us the worth of God. And that's why God has given us his whole history with his people— and tied to that, the written revelation that teaches us about it teaches us how God functions, what He's done, and ultimately culminates in Jesus. And in this created thing, He creates from Christ and through the Holy Spirit, called the Church. It's that line of revelation that's designed to humble our pride and to show us His worth. I mean, wh- I mean, that's what these verses are all about, right? The law of the Lord is perfect. It revives the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. Right? You don't have to drive everything in human life. You believe the thing God says, you apply it, you don't have to be the sharpest knife in the drawer, and you can be wise. Now, you might go, oh, that's nice. Stupid people who aren't me can be relatively smart. That's—no, that's not what that means. That means you and I, who are consistently self-deluded— and are bad at deriving reality Can trust God And become wise And people who aren't the sharpest knife in the drawer Can be wise The precepts of the Lord are right Giving joy to the heart The commands of the Lord are radiant you Remember that verse from the last psalm? Remember what, remember what he said? He said, look on me and answer me, O Lord Th- I mean, this is, the, this is the most pessimistic Verse in that whole psalm, in my view Look at me and answer me, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. But what does the same author say a few chapters later? The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. You see, he found it eventually. He found the Lord's light. And it wasn't... It wasn't uh, a God-showing-up revelation going big. It was that he read his Bible is what happened, and he saw something in it that radiated a truth of the worth of God in his feeling of total lostness. And that radiation of worth and truth and goodness gave light to his eyes. He could see something about his situation and his world and his life and what was going on, and it gave him strength again. Right? And he says, he says, I found that in the commands of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. And then he talks about their worth. So not only are they—it's because it's not subjective. It's not like, oh, you'll like this. They're really nice. He starts out with a few verses of, no, they're right. They're true, perfect, trustworthy. Whether you like them or not, they're awesome. Now, when it comes to how we should perceive them subjectively, how should we feel about them? What should we do? He's like, here's—here's show. they're, they're more precious than gold, than pure gold. They're sweeter than honey, right out of the comb. By them negatively, are we warned from things that would destroy us, and through them, we can find great reward. They, they could not be better for us. They could not be better news for us, right? Which brings us back to that question, is God really hidden? Is that premise Right? It's not God's revelation is beyond sufficient For us to know his glory and his wonder That he's glorious and wonderful Is God Does God fulfill our wishes of his self-revelation? Or even our felt needs? Like if, if, if I pray and I say God, I just need you I just need you to show yourself to me Or like, could you just make something happen? Right? And I say I need And I feel like I need God to do a particular thing, and I pray that I say I need it, and I feel one hundred percent inside that I need it, that I do need it, or I'll die. Right? Does God reveal Himself and do those things in those ways? No. Is in relation to that, is he is he hidden in some ways? Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. But is he hidden from his perspective? Do we have insufficient revelation of God's existence and God's character such that we could respond and relate to God? Well, according to Scripture, we have beyond sufficient revelation. In creation, from the cosmos to the conscience, in the history of God's people, from God's first action— for Adam and creation and in redemption in Abraham all the way to the present, inscripturated in the Bible, culminated in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, empowered and quickened by the Holy Spirit creating a thing called the church. People who together witness for the glory and presence of Christ and in their individual lives are found everywhere, hopefully living out the beauty and presence of Christ. There's actually kind of a lot of revelation And that brings us just to the last verses in the psalm, right? That basically presume that one really important thing, that the darkness actually really isn't out there. It's not that God is perfectly hidden, wrapping himself in an inscrutable darkness that we could never penetrate, intentionally hiding himself from us so that we could never know what he's really like. Actually, the stars are there. We're just looking through a telescope that we have willfully put the cap on. The darkness is right here. It's right here. That's what he says in the last verses. Who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Right now, let's do a little Bible interpretation. Hidden from whom? Who are the faults hidden from? Are we talking about your secret sin? The thing you just can't get free of that you hope nobody finds out about? You know? No, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about sins that are hidden from him. That he doesn't know about That's why the first line says Who can discern or realize his own errors Right? So he's saying There are things really wrong with me Errors I make constantly Mistakes that I don't even know exist I'm totally wrong about a pile of things That I don't even know about I, I, I can't figure them out And so God will you please forgive My faults that are hidden from me You see the assumption there? He's assuming they exist because if he knew they were there, they wouldn't be hidden faults. Do you, s- you see the logic? He's saying, I see your glory and creation. I see the special revelation. I see who you are. I know what my attitude is. That deductively shows to me the problem is here. Therefore, I have hidden thoughts and things I'm doing and thinking and feeling, ways that the sinful condition has messed me up that I don't even know are there. And, God, and I know that on some level I'm culpable for them, like Romans 1 says. And so, will you forgive them? I can't even offer repentance. You see, half of Christian saving repentance is recognizing you are not even competent to repent. Martin Luther found this when he was a monk. He would go into confessionals, and he would try to repent by confessing every sin that he knew of. He would spent hours and hours and hours confessing, trying to think of another sin, another fault, another half-truth, another place where he didn't believe quite right, like something because he wasn't free. He didn't feel free inside. He felt like there was still something. And he's trying to discern all his hidden faults, and it's not possible. At some point, you have to say, God, that's all I know about. (laughs) I expect that there are many more faults that I don't know about. Will you forgive them too? And then he demonstrates not only is his heart sick and his mind sick in a way, but his will is sick. You see, because he says in the next verse, even the things he knows are wrong, he's in danger of becoming their slave. And that's a problem of the will, isn't it? He says, "Keep your servant also from willful sins, sins of presumption i 'm going to do them, and hopefully god 'll forgive me. May they not rule over me." You see the imagery of the imagery of slavery he 's like, "There are willful sins, stuff I know is wrong, I want to do and, and i 'm in danger of falling into the slavery of that thing because i don 't want you enough." And there's a motivation problem in me that is ugly, and it's going to leave me to suppression of the truth and self-justification so that I can do what I want. And God, will you please do something to incline my heart to you so that I won't do that? Because I don't know how to not do that. I'm afraid they're going to rule over me, right? And he says, please help me. So you see the admission at the end of the psalm, when he recognizes God's revelation in his glory and his wonder, he says, God, will you save me from what I am? from the darkness that's not you, but that's here in me, that's making me think that the darkness is there, when it's here. And will you forgive me my hidden faults? Will you help me see my hidden faults? And will you help me not fall into where my will is messed up? And will you help me see that your commands are worth more than gold, that they're sweeter than honey, that they're sure that they can make wise the simple... So that I won't run after that thing. So that the kind of person I'll become is someone who the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart pleases you. Because you are my rock and my salvation. Now, that may not feel all that encouraging. Because you may feel like, okay, basically, Nick, you're telling me that I'm inscrutably problematic, and I can't even know how bad I am, and yes, that is what I'm saying. Right? And if you have a problem with that, you're still trying to save yourself, and you can't be saved. So it's good news, you see, because if you realize you don't know the bottom, and you're never going to find the bottom—there's this band I really love called Waterdeep, and they—but they had—and normally they sing about depravity so well, but there's this one line in a song called Put Me, where he says, I know all my broken places like the back of my hand. No, you don't. No, you don't. But you see, if you will realize that you are never going to get to the bottom of that well, you might turn to Christ to save not only the sins that you have committed that you know are wrong, that you deserve plenty of wrath for, but the places where your will doesn't even want to do the right thing and you know that thing's going to take you down. And the things... That you are oblivious to That stink to high heaven Because of how deeply we suppress the truth And there was one time Where God's eternal power and divine nature And his word His spoken revelation about the wonder of the worth of himself Came right together In the most living color and that is when creation became incarnation in the word of Jesus Christ what john calls him the word made flesh so that he could embody the glory of god show something of his eternal power and divine nature and also display his worth and humble our pride You see, if you recognize the implicit argument of Psalm 13 and Psalm 19, it would lead us to the conclusion that the kind of revelation we most need is a secondary special revelation that humbles our pride and teaches us about the worth of God and shows us that we should delight in the divine nature and eternal power of the Father. That is exactly what Jesus is. And it should also lead us to the point where we believe we are completely unable to, To simply pattern ourselves after that Savior. To say, oh, Jesus did it, I'll do it like him. No, no, no. We need divine assistance. We need a Savior who has performed it for us and can save us out of it, which is what Jesus is. Jesus didn't say, merely come follow me. He said, believe in me so that our sins could be forgiven, we could be regenerated in heart from the inside out, and that God in the presence of his Holy Spirit could come into the region of our conscience, the most dark place, and bring life and bring light and begin to recalibrate the dark place so that we could walk with God, we could see the glory of God in creation, and we could see the worth of God in everything and so the, the message is always the same. Whether you're a skeptic, you, you're I mean, just a skeptic. The message for you is believe in the Savior. He died for you. He came as the exact kind of revelation you need. Maybe not the one you want, but the one you need. And if you will put your faith in him, he will save you and he will lead you and he will change you and he will walk with you and he will add you into this organism he created called the church. And if you are a Christian, guess what's for you? The exact same thing. Believe in Jesus. Exactly the revelation we need to lead us to the place where our pride is humbled so we can see our issues, so that the thing we would seek for God to reveal to us is not just his general nature, but the hidden darkness in us. That's the thing we should be attending to. And that's the exact place Jesus supplies his remedies. He'll change you He will change you He will always give us What we require He will not be subjected To our demands But he has never Left us without revelation Sufficient Beyond sufficient To know his glory And his wonder And he has supremely Revealed himself in Jesus And he's promised that if you come to Jesus, he will save you and he will change you and he will start to show you not only himself, but yourself. And it's gonna hurt, but it's gonna be good. It'll make the simple and the sinful wise. And we're both. Let's pray. Father, we pray that Psalm 19 would be like Like a foghorn to us, in the middle of mist, we can't see it, but it sure does show us the true north. And we pray, Father, that you would you would you would incline us to you, that you would build faith in us. And we pray, God, that now as we take some time to sing and to try to devote our hearts to you physically by singing and by believing out loud. That we've trusted in your steadfast love like the psalmist says in Psalm 13. Help us to sing and to emote and to feel and to act and to press in our will and to seek to accept and believe and see your glory and your wonder and help that to start us to be able to walk out into the world and to realize that we have always been made to see wonder and glory in everything. And for that everything to point back to you so that we could enjoy you like honey right out of a honeycomb. The sweetest thing there is. And that your precepts would bring joy to the heart. pray in Jesus' name, amen.